This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, October 18th. On the pod today, U.S. President Joe Biden makes an extraordinary visit to a country at war and a region at a boiling point. Biden says Israel is not responsible for the deadly hospital blast in Gaza, saying U.S. intelligence points to Gaza militants. We speak with investigative journalism group Bellingcat about what they found out about the blast. Plus, an Israel Defense Forces spokesperson lays out Israel's argument for who's responsible. Then, two experts discuss the political fallout. U.S. President Joe Biden is now on his way back to Washington after a historic trip to Israel. He stood behind Israel's claim that a deadly airstrike on a Gaza hospital last night came from within Gaza. The CBC's Margaret Evans joins us from Jerusalem. Uh, So, Margaret, a a very important visit for the U.S. president coming on the eve of this disaster at the hospital. What did the president have to say about what happened in Gaza? Well, uh, David, he used uh, that that, uh, very curious but very Biden-esque phrase, I guess, when talking about um, the information that the Israeli Defense Forces had presented earlier in the day, all day long, saying that they were not responsible, presenting um, their intelligence sources, presenting an audio tape of what they say is a conversation between somebody from Hamas and another militant talking about what went on, about a, a, launch, uh, a rocket launched by Palestinian jihad having um, failed and that it was launched from a cemetery behind the hospital. This is the kind of information that um, the Israelis have been presenting all day along with satellite imagery. Um, And uh, Joe Biden uh, was clearly presented with that intelligence as well, perhaps some others. We don't know. We do know that they're doing their own investigation. But in a public meeting uh, with the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, he said, you know, from what I can see, uh, it was the other team. You didn't do it. It was the other team, not you. So a very kind of casual um, way of, of putting it. But certainly the message to the watching world was that America feels that, that the Israeli explanation for it is credible. Obviously, that's not something that many people in the Middle East share right now, particularly on the Palestinian street. Right. He, he, he's not going to convince some people, no matter how definitive the proof and how strong his assertions. So there, that was one goal uh, of this visit, though. What do you think Biden's visit accomplished? Well, certainly he did show what he wanted to show in terms of um, unwavering support for Israel. He got off the plane uh, and had an embrace, a hug with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He met with some of the the survivors from the Hamas uh, attack on October 7th with some of the families whose, whose loved ones are still believed to be hostages. And there were quite emotional scenes of people saying how much they, uh, they appreciated his support. He's on the cover of the Jerusalem Post. There are big billboards um, in Tel Aviv saying, thank you, Mr. President. So clearly very important in terms of supporting um, Israel, of course. 
course, that will reinforce uh, amongst some countries in the Middle East the notion that the United States is is supporting uh, Israel to the degree that it is somehow complicit or at the very least not an honest broker in trying to mediate here. Um, one of the things he did come away with was um, a pledge from the Israeli Prime Minister not to block access um, for humanitarian aid going into the Gaza Strip, but very specifically that that aid does not include fuel, it's uh, food, water and medicine. Um, it, when might that happen? We're not sure. Uh, the, the Israelis have said very specifically that they will not allow that to happen if they think that that aid is going to land in the hands of Hamas. But this is an important gesture, and it might be something that would help um, dial back some of the negativity or, um, that has been directed um, in the Arab world towards the United States for people feeling that they hadn't come out strongly enough in condemning um, the, the bombing campaign in general in Gaza, not just the controversy over this particular hospital. Although Biden did make a point of saying to uh, Mr. Netanyahu, you know, don't act too harshly. He said, you must remember that the Palestinian people do not support Hamas universally, and he said that, you know, Hamas had brought tragedy down upon them. Um, will this be enough to gain him back a little bit of leverage with the rest of the Arab world? We'll have to wait and see, because as you know, that summit that was planned uh, with Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, was cancelled immediately after the explosion at the hospital. Um, and this was supposed to be a visit that would dampen down tensions, and certainly that that hasn't seemed to happen so far, although what you're seeing in the Arab world right now is a lot of protests, a lot of roiling anger, but we're still waiting to see what the leadership might be doing, yeah. what, what the leadership might do in the days ahead, and particularly what's going to be happening with, with Iran and with Hezbollah, of course, over in Lebanon on the northern border. All right, Margaret, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Margaret Evans in Jerusalem. During his trip, President Joe Biden said that U.S. intelligence appeared to absolve Israel from blame in last night's Gaza hospital explosion. Based on the information we've seen to date, it appears the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. The United States unequivocally stands for the protection of civilian life during conflict. And I grieve, I truly grieve for the families were killed or wounded by this tragedy. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at Car Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He previously served as a U.S. State Department official working on Middle East policy and the Arab-Israel peace process. Aaron David Miller, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden said today that based on the information he's seen, whatever happened at the hospital in Gaza was a result of an errant rocket attack from a terrorist group in Gaza, in his words, uh, though he concedes that not everyone in the Arab world is going to believe that explanation. How pivotal is this incident in this moment, in your view? Well, I think you've seen from the uh, unrest and anger and uh, violent demonstrations in, the, in Arab capitals and in the West Bank uh, just how volatile the situation is. You know, the frame the president is trying to, to create is a frame that focuses primarily on Israel 
he unfortunately, because of this incident, and he's made it clear, probably brief from his own intel sources, and uh, I'm sure the Israelis as well, that this was an errant uh, Palestine Islamic Jihad rocket attack, not an Israeli missile strike. But that has unfortunately led to the cancellation or at least the suspension, uh, maybe the postponement of the quote-unquote Arab summit that he was supposed to have in Amman. So the optic right now for the president, at least in the Arab world, is not the best. It's not the one that the president and the administration intended, and it wasn't their fault. Uh, but I think it, it suggests just how, how um, frustrated and angry the region is and how much they want the president to sort of equate the terror surge uh, on October 7, which was literally drawn out of an Islamic State or Al-Qaeda handbook, with the uh, blockade and punishing airstrikes that has led to the death of well over 2,000, almost 3,000 Palestinians. I think they want moral equivalents here. And uh, the president uh, clearly uh, uh, doesn't see it quite that way, even while he expresses, and he did in Israel, his profound sadness uh, or the loss of, of innocent Palestinian lives. The purpose of this trip, there, there's multiple uh, objectives here for the president, each of them complex, uh, obviously to show support for Israel, but uh, the, also to stop this from widening into a more regional conflict. So how damaging do you think this event was in terms of that prospect of de-escalation and containment? I mean, I don't think it will detract um, over time from... Uh, the two objectives he set on this trip, or the two objectives that the administration has defined with respect to the region. One is clearly trying to figure out a way to cons convince the Israelis and the Egyptians, since they are the primary uh, parties responsible for the Rafah crossing, which is the only crossing right now that is open from southern Gaza to Egypt, um, to try to create a stable sort of bridge or corridor for, for the surging of humanitarian assistance, which is simply, which is waiting in order to proceed in Gaza, but is being upheld. Hamas is the third party that has a say in Rafa, and, and they have no interest whatsoever in facilitating the flow of Palestinians out or allowing humanitarian assistance in. So that's one objective. Um, the second, of course, is deterrence. Uh, the United States will soon have two carrier strike groups in the Eastern Mediterranean. And I think the president said, we listened to the speech, uh, warned, uh, if you're thinking about intervening in specific reference to Iran and its, its um, uh, associated uh, non-state actor group in Lebanon, Hezbollah, he said three times, if you're thinking about intervening, don't, don't, don't. I think the show of American force reinforces, I think, the inclination on the part of both Tehran and Hezbollah not to get involved in a major campaign, which would be very costly for both of them. So I think on balance, given how fraught the situation was and how uncertain it is, the president more or less got done what he set out to do. One more, one more point, which is to sit with the Israelis. He said it publicly to sort of remind them of the importance in the wake of our 9-11 in not, not being consumed by rage and planning a very clear strategy going forward where the means at your disposal are uh, somehow suited and appropriate to the ends you want to achieve. An operation against Hamas in Gaza right now is going to be bloody and fraught. And then there's the day after problem. So I think this was on balance 
That's a very successful trip by the president. So just on that final point you made, that he, he reaffirmed his support for Israel, but also cautioned them, as you say, not to let rage over October 7th, what happened there, to guide all of their actions in response. And pointing to mistakes, he says, that the United States made in, in its response uh, to what happened on, on September 11th. How do you think that's going to be interpreted by Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet and, and by the Israeli people? You know, I think the blood is up in Israel. 1,300 Israeli kill, Israelis killed in a matter of, of hours. The bloodiest day with respect to the deaths of Jews since the Nazi Holocaust. I think it reinforces, frankly, a sort of inherent, despite the anger and the rage, an inherent risk aversion. I think the delay in this operation, we're already in week two. And I would suspect we'll get through another week without a major ground campaign. Weather is a problem. Israelis want to create uh, uh, pressure to get uh, Palestine, more Palestinians from Gaza City to, to move south so they can operate more freely and avoid civilian casualties. And, of course, the president's visit. I think that, that whether or not the Israelis go through, through with this, I think that they're thinking about what the president said very seriously. For years, uh, despite the politicians in Israel's right, right wing politicians in Israel's propensity to want to do this, finally crush, eradicate Hamas, uh, I think security and intelligence elite military is very wary of undertaking this operation. Because of the civilian toll inside Gaza, the possibility of provoking Hezbollah, is it all of those things that are weighing on them, sir? Yeah, primarily, though, uh, their own casualties. Right. Uh, obviously, and then the the incredibly difficult challenge of what comes next. So do the Israelis reoccupy Gaza, 2.3 million people, 21,000 humans per square mile, half of whom are under the age of 15? Who provides the social services? Who cleans up the garbage? Who administers? Who pays the salaries for, for uh, Gaza's bureaucracy? Um, you take Hamas out, you create a new reality, uh, you undermine its capacity to govern and its sovereignty, and clearly Gaza is not benefiting right. from Hamas's governance since 2007. But who then picks up um, all of these tasks? And the answer right now, nobody knows. Just as, as a, a final point before we let you go, um, President Biden did announce that Israel has agreed, uh, apparently, to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza, subject to inspections, because they have concerns that, you know, crates of food and sacks of rice could be used to bring in ammunition and resupply for Hamas. Egypt yeah. has, has made that a condition before it'll even consider allowing foreign nationals to come out of there. But you mentioned that Hamas has no interest in allowing people to leave. I think that's pretty easy to understand. But you also said they, they have no incentive to allow aid to come in. Why, why would you think that is the case, if you could explain that to me, and what do you think the prospects are that we see some sort of humanitarian relief coming out of all of this? I mean, I, I think it, it feeds the notion somehow that Hamas is completely inadequate and capable right. of governing. Uh, they have sufficient fuel stocks and, and water. Um, they are clearly not sharing those with the, with the population of Gaza because they're, they're redirected and repurposed toward their sustaining their military campaign. So I think it's a fraught situation in Rafa. I mean, days, we can't even get the 400 American passport holders out through Rafa. Um, I hope the president has succeeded in breaking the logjam. I would have felt better had he been able to go to Oman 
and see Abdel Fattah Sisi, the president of Egypt, to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him about Egypt's role there. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I want to thank you for your time today. David, thanks for having me. It was a scene of chaos and terror last night after an airstrike hit outside a Gaza City hospital. Gaza's health ministry, which is run by Hamas, said about 500 people were killed from the blast. That Hamas-run ministry called it a horrifying attack by the Israel Defense Forces. But Israel denied involvement in the explosion. It said Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a militant group aligned with Hamas in Gaza, was in fact to blame. In the light of day, we see a clearer picture. Burnt and upturned vehicles, damaged roofs, and a crater near Al-Ali Hospital. But the hospital itself appears to remain standing and may not have sustained significant damage to its buildings. So what actually happened here? Well, Netherlands-based investigative journalism group Bellingcat is trying to find out. Giancarlo Fiorella is the director of research and training with the Bellingcat investigation team, and we've reached him in Amsterdam. Giancarlo, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. So you and your team, you've done a, a preliminary analysis into the Gaza hospital blast. A at this point, can you definitively say who is responsible for this? No, at this point, we cannot definitively say who's responsible for this. That's uh, the follow-up investigation following the report that we published um, earlier today. Okay, so you've started with what your team calls an imagery analysis by looking through social media footage and other things. So, so based on that, what can you say about what happened? So we know that there was a detonation in the parking lot of uh, this hospital in Gaza. Um, we know precisely where this munition impacted uh, the ground and the area that was affected by this explosion. We also know that the area that was affected by the explosion, unfortunately, um, contained a, a, a large number of people. Uh, we saw videos emerge last night showing the area around the explosion uh, just full of uh, people who were um, on sleeping cots uh, with blankets, um, presumably resting or trying to sleep in these grassy areas around the parking lot of the hospital. Right. Okay. So uh, we've seen people obviously taking refuge in unconventional spaces in Gaza throughout this, and, and this appears to have been one of those places. Uh, yes, I would say so. All of the evidence that we've seen today um, from from this area around the, the parking lot indicates that this was, a, a, um, as you say, an, an unconventional uh, area for people to right. just sort of rest, um, presumably. Okay, uh, we're going to show some images now, if we can. Uh, things that were released, the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, uh, released a satellite image uh, of the blast zone outlining its analysis. It stated that there were no craters identified at the site. Your team, however, says it was able to identify what appears to be a crater, which we've highlighted here in this second image. What does this tell us about the explosion? Well, it tells us that, first of all, it was produced by um, ammunition that was capable of creating a crater. So it's something that fell from the sky and exploded uh, with some force. Uh, we also know from images of the parking lot that some of the vehicles that were parked in the vicinity of where this munition detonated were very severely damaged. There's one in particular that was resting on its roof um, after the explosion, and then there was another vehicle nearby that was just completely mangled, um, clearly, by the explosive force from, from this uh, incident. 
Okay, I, I've seen a picture uh, of what's being called the crater. I don't know if it's the same thing, but it, but it's I, I believe it was from Reuters, and and the IDF has claimed that the impact point. They look at this and they say. It's very small. I think it's about a meter wide and about 30 to 40 centimeters deep. And their argument is that it does not appear consistent with Israeli weaponry. And it certainly doesn't look like the things we're seeing in the other parts of Gaza, where we know Israel is, is, is behind uh, the damage. Does that explanation track uh, that, that this is too small to have likely been an IDF weapon? Uh, I would say, and citing the report that we published, uh, we have uh, some commentary from an expert who who came to the same conclusion that this crater does not appear to be consistent with uh, a larger munition, which is what we might come to expect from um, the IDF. And certainly we've seen lots of footage um, uh, of airstrikes and the aftermath of airstrikes over the past week and a half uh, that show much more damage to um, um, affected areas. Um, but I would say that's still too early to definitively say, just based on that alone, who was responsible for this. No, I, I get you. And that's the challenge with this type of work is that we're never, we may never get pure definitive proof. It's a balance of probability type of scenario th- that we move towards. And, and so the IDF, they also shared aerial footage from a military drone that it says shows that the blast was actually a failed rocket launch by Islamic Jihad. We've seen some videos of this as well from places like Al Jazeera. Has your team been able to identify the validity of this video? What what can you tell us about it? So this is a claim that we're looking into now. Um, It's something that we began to look at as as these claims first appeared online last night. Um, But it's something that we're going to continue to look because certainly that's one of the theories that this is an errant missile that was part of a a barrage, I'm sorry, that was fired uh, from Gaza at about the time that this explosion took place. But uh, again, we haven't uh, conducted that analysis to to uh, its limit, and so we we, we cannot uh, say anything definitive about that. Okay, so your work isn't done, right? So, so what more do you need to to see to uncover uh, to be able to attribute responsibility? And I guess going back to our earlier point, uh, how high is the chance that we might not ever be able to determine precisely what happened? Yeah, that's the question. I mean, we have to wait for open source videos and pictures to filter from the site onto social media. Uh, Telegram is a platform that's been uh, really useful for tracking uh, uh, content that's coming out of the uh, of the hospital um, uh, over the last day or so. Uh, I would say that's something that would be that's something that we are looking um, to see um, to see if, if if it surfaces on social media is anything that resembles munition remnants. It's not uncommon after an incident like this for pieces of the missile or the bomb to remain at the site. And so anything um, like a munition remnant, uh, a fragment from a missile or the bomb that caused this, that's something that would be on the lookout for and really uh, interested in analyzing if, if those images were to come out. Giancarlo Fiorella with the Bellingcat investigation team. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Here is some footage captured Wednesday of the aftermath. The death toll is estimated at nearly 500. Hamas is blaming Israel for an airstrike. Israel is accusing a group known as the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a militant group aligned with Hamas in Gaza. Hamas has provided no evidence to support its claim. The Israel Defense Forces say they have intelligence to back up theirs. And here is some of the material that they have released. 
This image, provided by the IDF, allegedly shows the origin of the rocket launch. You can see it highlighted there with the red dot. You can also see the site of the hospital. That's the white dot. The IDF has also put out a recording of a conversation they claim is between two Hamas operatives, and the translation text on this recording was also provided by the IDF, and CBC News, of course, cannot independently verify the recording, but take a listen. Now, despite what Israel has released, many Arab countries in the Middle East continue to blame Israel for what happened. Here with me now is Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, the spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. Lieutenant Colonel, it's good to speak with you again. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I'd like to start, if I could, uh, with the people who still don't believe Israel's denial that they were involved with this. What do you say to people and countries who don't believe you, despite what you have put out as evidence of your non-involvement? I would say that they're siding with the side of darkness, that they're on the wrong side, categorically. Is there other intelligence? I know President Biden was there today and says the Americans have intelligence, and I know members of the Senate committee in Washington were briefed on it today, and they have come to the same conclusion that you have, that it was uh, uh, Islamic Jihad. Is there other intelligence you're willing to release or the Americans can release to help convince people who still aren't on board? No, and frank, to be frank, I don't think that any other, of, uh, any other person or entity of importance needs to be presented with more intelligence. Uh, we have already produced and presented to the world very transparently intelligence in almost real time. Just a few hours after the event happened, we produced a statement and then intelligence to support our claims. Uh, now that also the U.S. has seen and verified, and uh, I think according to their own sources as well, I think that this issue should be laid to rest had it not been for one topic. I was appalled yesterday to see headlines all across the world taking Hamas' word for the truth and reporting what Hamas said to be what happened on the ground. And I think that, if anything, should be investigated and there should be proof of uh, no bad intentions on side of the international media because I think that is reckless. The uh, clashes and riots that uh, erupted afterwards in various Arab cities around uh, the world in the Middle East, they are a direct result of this Hamas fake that was parroted in international media. And I think it is shameful that even today, 24 hours after the event, we, a sovereign democratic country defending ourselves and who are held accountable for our actions are asked to provide more evidence when Hamas, a terrorist organization, hasn't provided a single piece of evidence and all of the circumstantial and actual evidence on the ground supports what we said. There's no crater. There's no damage, substantial damage to the building. There's fires which never occur when we drop a bomb, but they do occur when rockets are fired and the recording and the radar picture. What else do we need to bring the leader of uh, Islamic Jihad on camera and say, yes, we fire the rockets? Will that be enough evidence to put this issue to rest?
Uh, your criticism of, of the media, sir, is well taken. There were a lot of journalistic mistakes made uh, in, in the aftermath of what happened, and people rushed uh, to put a story out, and, and uh, you're not wrong in your criticism. And I would hope a lot of serious conversations are happening in newsrooms uh, around the world to, to put guardrails up to make sure that doesn't happen again. Uh, but I ask about the intelligence because you've seen the criticism inside your own country about how so much of what happened on October 7th was a result of an intelligence failure. And people have lost confidence in, in intelligence agencies. And, you know, around the world, we have been assured in the past that there's intelligence to support something that is later borne out to not be true. And I, I'm not... Uh, so we ask you, because you are a democracy, and you are willing to come on and speak to us and take our questions. So I hope you appreciate the question in that vein, sir, uh, for your yeah. own people. And, and I have a response regarding the intelligence. Sure. Um, uh, yesterday, we... Uh, published that we had taken out, or in less uh, uh, nice terms, we had killed a senior Hamas leader in uh, central Gaza, Ayman Ofel. He was uh, responsible for planning uh, part of the planners of the attack, and he was a liaison officer to other terrorist organizations. He was a man who knew he had a target on his back, yet he was killed. Do you know how he was killed? He was killed using real, live, hard intelligence, which helped us the, and the Israeli Air Force put a bomb on the building where he was hiding, and he is now no longer. So that, I think, is one answer that yeah. we could give to the many people uh, around the world who may question our intelligence, the, the level of the military intelligence, uh, which is fair, that's okay. But to Israelis, which are, in my mind, the most important who need to understand that the IDF has these capabilities, I would uh, ask how many of those Hamas seniors are now in hiding and why are they in hiding? They're in hiding because they know that we're tracking them and that we still have a formidable intelligence cap capacity. Granted, we failed on October the 7th. We failed to defend, we failed to detect, we failed to respond quickly enough and the system that was designed to stop this and other types of attacks didn't deliver. And that is a hard situation that we, the IDF, have to deal with with our population. And after the war, there will be hard conversations and hard answers given after a long process of after-action review and soul-searching. That will happen. But it's not the matter at hand now. Now we're in the business of dismantling Hamas. Now we're focusing on setting the situation straight and defending our civilians and making sure that Hamas will never again have the ability to do the atrocities that they did on October the 7th. You say and you've provided evidence to back up your claim you had nothing to do with this, but the outrage in the Arab world has been intense. I just wonder when you've seen that, what do you think this incident and the journalism, journalistic criticism you leveled earlier, what do you think all of this has done? to global opinion on your battle with Hamas? Not so much on global opinion, because in my um, very um, own uh, you know, assessment of the situation, I don't think that it has uh, really mattered a lot, because we were out uh, early and clearly, and we said, and we have stood by what we've said, and we provided evidence. So anybody in the Western world who really uh, matters and cares about it, I think that they are convinced. Uh, the Arab world is different, and there's lots of emotions. Whenever there's fighting between Israel and any of the Palestinian terror organizations, we know that emotions run high, and we know that it's a time when many 
people and organizations with extremist agendas come out of hiding and try to stoke more violence and to create more instability wherever they are. And we've seen this in Tunisia, we've seen it in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Egypt, of course in Turkey, which is uh, really threading a very, very fine line when it comes to the situation and in many other locations. It is dangerous. We are aware of it. We are definitely trying not to escalate the situation. It's not as if as we are going around bombing places and saying, oh yeah, we did it just for the fun of it. That is not the situation. We have said consistently throughout this campaign, the people of Gaza are not our enemy and we are striking Hamas and their military facilities with a right. clear military aim, which is to dismantle Hamas. And everything that we do is in order to achieve this aim. And my word of what I'm asking of my, our dear neighbors in the area is not to fall prey to fake news and falsehoods and lies that are doctored by a terrorist organization trying to promote their own political aims and agenda. So I, I wonder, Lieutenant Colonel, there are many other health facilities in Gaza than the one at the center of this controversy for the last 24 hours. And, and we've heard from World Health Organizations in the region that there have been 51 attacks on facilities so far, killing 15 healthcare workers and wounding 27. So how should people reconcile what the World Health Organization, an arm of the United Nations, is saying versus your insistence that the IDF does not target healthcare facilities, and yet we're seeing them hit in attacks and people dying. It is sad and unfortunate that, uh, uh, and again, I base the what I'm saying on the report that you just cited, and I believe that it is true. Uh, it is sad that uh, healthcare workers die. They are not the target, and no medical facility has been intentionally targeted. Intent is very, very important when it comes to uh, the assessment of uh, blame or responsibility. We have no intent of striking medical facilities. There's ample evidence, on the contrary, of Hamas using either the proximity of or the exact locations uh, of medical facilities for their fighting activities. But I can reiterate clearly that we do not strike medical facilities uh, as a rule of thumb. There may have been cases where we struck nearby and medical facilities were affected. That may have happened, but I am not aware until this day when we are on tw day 12 of the fighting of the war of any deliberate strike of a medical facility. If it happens, I think it would only be in a case of a, for instance, a senior military Hamas commander hiding in a clinic. That may validate a strike, but I am not aware of any such event until now. Okay, because there is one hospital in particular I'm thinking of, and this is Al-Shifa Hospital in, in Gaza City, and we know that in the past Hamas has used this. It is also the largest hospital in the area, and we've spoken to doctors who work there who are not connected with Hamas, and they're in the area you've told them to leave. They have patients on ventilators, they have people who can't be moved because they're too sick, and, and they face, they say, an inhumane choice to leave them and move. So I know this creates a moral and an operational challenge for you as you try to deal with Hamas, but they can't leave without people dying. What are they supposed to do in these facilities? What one would hope that would happen would be for Hamas, the governing entity that controls the Gaza Strip, to care for its civilians and to provide the resources, in this case ambulances, uh, in order to transport those people. 
if the situation was the opposite, that we had to evacuate an area of our country, then it would be the responsibility of my government and my organization to provide the, the tools necessary in order to do it because we govern our country. Hamas governs the Gaza Strip. They are responsible for the situation. They also started this war by the brutal terror attack uh, on the 7th of October, and they have continued to use everything holy and civilian for their military purposes. They have continuously stopped civilians from evacuating. They have stopped international citizens from exiting the Gaza Strip through Rafah four days ago. And they have stolen fuel from UN compounds in order to use for their military purposes instead of it being used in order to pump water for civilians. There is a trend here, there's a pattern where Hamas uses everything instead of protecting the civilians, they're using them. So what should happen? Hamas should evacuate the hospital because if they claim to be the defenders of Gaza against Israel, then that should be in their interest. But it isn't because they want them there as human shields. You mentioned the Rafah crossing. Uh, people have been trying to leave there to get into Egypt for safety, but there has been military activity down there. Uh, the IDF obviously been involved with it. There is now uh, reports of an agreement to see 20 trucks of aid come in from Egypt, uh, maybe as early as Friday. This is what U.S. President Joe Biden says he negotiated with President Sisi of Egypt and with Prime Minister Netanyahu. The IDF, will you pause military activity in that area to allow this to happen? Will you facilitate this? I don't know if Hamas will agree. I, I accept that that is a wild card in this. But what will Israel do to allow this to happen? Yes, this has been agreed upon by the Israeli cabinet uh, at the request of President Biden. And what we've done is to establish a designated humanitarian zone northwest of Khan Yunus in an area called El Muasi, which is an agricultural area by the coast. That will be the designated humanitarian zone from our perspective. It's in the south. It's in a relatively non-Hamas area. And that is where humanitarian aid should go. And that is where civilians should go in order to uh, receive that aid. What we have said, based on our experience and the practices, the vile practices of Hamas, of using humanitarian aid for the military purposes, if any of the aid uh, is uh, if Hamas attempts to steal any of it, then we will shoot it and nobody will have it. So this needs to go to civilians, which indeed are in a difficult situation, and we, we, we respect that. Uh, and the Egyptians are doing a good thing by providing uh, humanitarian aid. But Hamas must be very careful not to try to abuse this as well. If they do, it will not happen. Okay, so this may happen on Friday, depending on how the negotiations go. The U.S. President Joe Biden, he has left Israel to come back to the United States. He's going to speak to Americans tomorrow night. There is a sense that your ground operation will begin now that the president has left. Where are we? What can you tell me about next steps? I can't speak about any sense. I can only say that the uh, continued military operations of the IDF are subject to many different considerations, physical considerations like weather uh, and uh, soil and etc., the state of our enemy, the readiness of our own forces, our logistic and operational readiness, the intelligence that we have at hand, uh, and of course by international diplomatic and political constraints as well. When the timing will be suitable for our aims, 
we will continue and enhance at our own judgment and as based on our initiative, uh, the military operations. And I'm not going to elaborate exactly what, when and where, and I'm sure that you don't expect me to. I can only say that we have more than 300,000 reserve and regular soldiers around the borders of Gaza uh, in their tanks, APCs, artillery pieces and trucks, and they are ready to continue to enhance the operations. The aim here, and I reiterate it, is to dismantle Hamas from its military capabilities and to make sure that never again will any terrorist organization in Gaza, and specifically not Hamas, be able to murder civilians like they did on October the 7th. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Okay, as you heard there, Israel is adamant. It was not responsible for the deadly bombing of that hospital in Gaza, but many Arab countries continue to blame Israel for this. The event set off protests and riots across the Middle East and have forced a postponement of a scheduled meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and the leaders of Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority. Let's turn now to two Middle East analysts for more analysis. Rhonda Sleem, you saw her last night. She is a senior fellow and director of the Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute. Thomas Junot is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa specializing in the Middle East. Thank you both for, for joining me. Uh, Thomas, Thomas, if I could start with you. You heard there, Israel insists it's not responsible for what happened at the hospital, but many of its neighboring countries still blame them. Your thoughts on this and how it's unfolding in the Middle East? Uh, there are several thoughts to have on that. First of all, uh, the reactions that we saw last night and earlier today by a lot of people, politicians, commentators, pundits, on either side, jumping to a conclusion in the absence of facts, I think was very regrettable, especially because we know that that we should be much more careful before jumping to conclusions, and, and sometimes wrong conclusions have serious consequences. So I think that has to be said. During the course of the day today, it does seem increasingly clear, I'm still reserving definitive judgment, but it does seem increasingly clear that, that it was not Israel that, that uh, struck that hospital, um, but we'll see. On the, on, in terms of perceptions in the Arab world, the damage is done uh, at, at this point, given the reactions that we've seen, given the accusations by a number of regional governments, uh, the perception is that it was Israel. And uh, at least in the short term, there's not much that anybody can say or do to, to really transform that. Randa, what's your sense of, of where we are uh, 24 hours or so after all of this started with the explosion at this hospital? I mean, I agree with Thomas that the perception is there in the Arab region. I think there is still evidence to be accumulated to identify the party behind the bombing. Uh, I mean, we have to also, you know, point that the same hospital was targeted last week and sustained damage to its second floor. There was an Israeli order to evacuate the area, the hospital administrators admitted to that and said they told the people, but then the people that to evacuate, 5,000 5, of them left, then returned because they had nowhere else to go. So, um, so I mean, I, again, physical evidence is needed. I think it behooves Israel and Hamas as well to call for a 
impartial third-party investigation, maybe ensure safe pa passage to international investigators who can come and collect physical evidence and not rely on open source videos and rely on evidence that is provided by only one side, in this case, Israel and the United States. And I'm saying one side because in the Arab region, United States now is being perceived as 100% aligned with, the, with Israel. Well, and, and Tama, uh, that certainly was reinforced by President Biden's comments today when he said that their intelligence is that this was done by the other team, as he, as he called things. So what's your quick assessment on the value or the impact of President Biden's visit to Israel today? It really depends what your metric to judge the value is uh, in terms of signaling uh, full backing by the U.S. to Israel, uh, then the the visit worked. I think the fact, just the simple fact that Biden went to Israel in a war zone uh, at a time of serious crisis in terms of, of sending that message to Israel that we got your back is, is, is very powerful, whether you agree with it or not. There were a couple caveats to Biden's messaging that are noteworthy uh, on the humanitarian side and on the need to think about a post-war scenario, a workable post-war scenario. But I think for now, that is largely falling on deaf ears. Mm. If your metric is a broader one than that beyond Israel, then, then there is a cost to the U.S., keeping in mind that the perception in the region was already that the U.S. was very close to Israel and that that was perceived negatively. But this is entrenching that perception and trying to think about post-war scenarios very early to do that because the war has barely begun. But trying to think about those scenarios, that could bring a cost to the U.S. So, so Randa, is there anything positive uh, from Biden's visit in terms of uh, messaging to uh, the Arab street, to the Arab world? He was supposed to have this summit in Jordan with, you know, uh, the Palestinian Authority, with Egypt. They were, he was able to speak with the Egyptian president and, and negotiate this humanitarian access deal. But even his warnings to Israel to not be consumed by rage, does any of that resonate outside of Israel in a way that maybe helps calm the situation? It did not at all. In fact, people were shocked by, by how close, you know, uh, President Biden um, came in his messaging in terms of, you know, no strings attached to, in terms of support to Israel. I, I agree with Thomas. There were definitely some mm. toning down of rhetoric, calling on Israel to think of the day after, learn from the mistakes made by the United States after, you know, 9-11, not to be consumed by vengeance, but that fell on, on really deaf ears in the Arab region. In fact, really, the word I heard mm. from talking to people in the region is that how shocked and surprised they were by, by the, this unwavering support that President Biden, you know, gave publicly to Israel. And, 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 and there is now this narrative that if the ground invasion is to be launched soon by Israel, the perception now in the region, which should be reinforced by the timing of the of the of the invasion, is that basically he was there to give a green light to the ground invasion of, of Hamas oh, of Gaza. Sorry. So so it, it it did not. I mean, he tried a balancing act and he failed at it as far as the Arab region is concerned. So, so Randa, help me understand that a little bit better. Is there anything he could have done and anything he could have said, or is it just the U.S. president is not the right vehicle? to speak to the Arab world? And, and, and if it isn't Joe Biden, who could help in the efforts to try to stop this from spilling over into something larger and more catastrophic than what is already unfolding? 
this is a big question that I'm, you know, you know, contending with, which is there is no adult in the room now. You know, I mean, you could have rely in the, I mean, in previous situation, I would have said definitely the United States will be seen by everybody as being the one side that can step in and force maybe, you know, ceasefire. Today's vote, you and you know, United States vote in the United Nations Security Council. Again, veto against a humanitarian pose. Again, that reinforced that perception that we cannot count. I mean, the Arabs cannot yeah. count on the United States to be a fair arbiter here. So the the perception is that there is no party now. Uh, definitely not Russia. Definitely not the EU. Maybe China in the future. After all, China mediated this deal between Saudi Arabia and and um, and Iran. So, but but at this point, uh, you know, United States is not being seen as as a player that the Arab side can count on not to take their side. They have always, you know, lived with the idea that the United States supports Israel and will always be supporting Israel. But the extent to which President Biden went day after day since October 7 in having this unconditional, no-string support to Israel has really been shocking to a lot of Arab observers, but also a lot of Arab officials. Right. And, and Tama, on that, there, there has been a shift in President Biden in the last little while, uh, especially since uh, Secretary of State Blinken met with the Israeli War Cabinet and laid down the demand that there needs to be humanitarian considerations if Biden is going to come here. And we're seeing language shifting here in Canada to focus more on the humanitarian side of things from the initial, we stand with Israel and it's right to defend it. So where do you see this going in terms of how how the West is going to respond to things as we inch closer and closer and closer to the ground invasion while the humanitarian crisis uh, continues to deteriorate? I think the key actors at this point, uh, chiefly Israel and Hamas, are not focused on that at this point. Uh, It is uh, not even a secondary consideration. Right now, Israel is focused on destroying Hamas. We can have a debate on whether that's feasible or not. I don't think it is. I think they will be able to weaken Hamas a fair bit, but not destroy it. Uh, But the humanitarian question is uh, simply not, not a dominant one. And the reality then is that as the violence continues, assuming that the ground incursion starts perhaps very soon, uh, and as the humanitarian crisis worsens in Canada, in the EU, uh, to a far lesser extent in the US, pressure will mount to do something about it, while in the Middle East, in the Arab world, in the rest of the Muslim world, uh, pressure, which is already very high, will get even higher. And and this will become a problem in relations between the US and allies and, and the Arab world. And and building on, on uh, Randa's point in, in the previous question, there had already been a growing perception going back to President Obama through President Trump and now to President Biden, as different as these three presidents are, among Gulf states in particular, Saudi Arabia, UAE, that the U.S. was disengaging from the region, that the U.S. was an increasingly unreliable partner for them as the guarantor of their security. And what we're seeing this week is, a, is an acceleration of what was already a, a growing perception. Tamar Juno and Randa Sleem, uh, it's complex stuff. Uh, thank you for walking uh, th- us through it, and, and we'll love to have you back again. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you. you. President Biden capped his seven-and-a-half-hour trip to the Middle East today without meeting in person with Arab leaders. That summit was canceled following the deadly bombing outside a hospital in Gaza. Biden did, however, leave with a deal to get limited humanitarian aid into Gaza and with a warning to Israel not to allow rage over the deadly Hamas attack to consume them. 
Diana Butu is a Canadian-Palestinian lawyer and a former negotiator with the Palestine Liberation Organization. Diana Butu, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start uh, with the U.S. president and his visit to Israel today. He says that based on the evidence that he has seen, uh, Israel is not to blame for what has happened at this hospital in Gaza, though he concedes there are many people in that part of the world who will not believe him, will not believe Israel. What are your thoughts on, on, on this moment, this incident, and this visit by this president? Look, in terms of the bombing of the hospital, it's important to put this in its context. This isn't the first time that Israel has bombed a hospital. They've bombed hospitals. Just yesterday, they also bombed a UN school. They bombed mosques. They bombed churches. They bombed just about everything. And, uh, and so this is not unusual for Israel's behavior. But more than that, immediately after they bombed the hospital, the person from the Israel Ministry of Defense came out and said that they bombed the hospital. Uh, and just before that, we saw a tweet by the Israeli prime minister saying that this is a struggle of the children of light versus the children of darkness. So this is not at all surprising uh, that Israel would do this. What is surprising is that people are still questioning whether it is, whether it is that Israel is doing. Israel has an obligation to protect life. It is the occupier. And instead of abiding by that obligation, it does whatever it wants. Now, when it comes to President Biden, this is because President Biden has given Israel the green light. He has said that he is in lockstep with, with Israel. And instead of calling for a ceasefire and calling for a halt, calling for international law to be applied, he's instead cheering Israel on. And, and so his visit here was simply a cheerleader coming to cheer on his favorite team. Okay, uh, there's a lot there. So you, you believe Israel did this despite their, their denials, the evidence that they have released in support uh, of their denials, and, and the pictures we've seen today um, that, that certainly don't bear the resemblance to the other direct, deliberate Israeli attacks we've seen to this point in the conflict. You still believe they did this? I believe that Israel has bombed many a hospital in the past. I'm not in Gaza. I cannot right. be a person who attests to it. But I know what Israel has done in the past, and I know what they said immediately before and immediately after. This, this, uh, we saw the protests throughout the Arab world last night in, in the hours after this and, and the condemnation of Israel uh, in, in the early hours after this incident. Part of the reason the president went there, I know you described him as a cheerleader, but the, the Americans say he went there to try to de-escalate things and contain it and stop it from spreading into a, a wider regional conflict. What's your sense of where things stand in terms of the ability to de-escalate things? I, I wish he was trying to de-escalate things. I think he's trying to escalate things. Look, there's currently a congressional resolution that is attempting to be passed calling for the president to uh, call for a ceasefire. He's not abiding by it. Today, just today, the United States exercised its veto in the UN Security Council once again to call to halt um, a ceasefire. So he's not at all trying to de-escalate it. I think it's important to question what it is that President Biden is trying to do. Look, the Israeli foreign minister and previous foreign minister have both indicated that their intent is to send Palestinians into the Sinai. That's mass transfer. That's, that's, uh, that's a war crime under international law. And instead of the world stopping this, we see that President Biden is speaking to U.S. Ca to capitals around uh, the Arab world trying to get their support for it. 
And and that's the only thing that he's trying to do. He's not at all trying to de-escalate. I wish that were the case. He has the ability to stop this by simply picking up the phone and telling Prime Minister Netanyahu to stop. But instead, he's simply been cheering them on. Right. Uh, perhaps I phrase that I- incorrectly. I-, I don't think he's trying to de-escalate necessarily the fight against Hamas in Gaza, though they are urging Israel uh, to not be fueled by their rage and, and make the mistakes that um, he says America made a- after 9-11. But to, to contain it, I-, I guess, is perhaps the way I should have phrased it, uh, uh, Ms. Butu, in terms of stopping it from spreading to a conflict that suddenly brings in Hezbollah, brings in you know all the other players potentially in the region. H- how worried are you that this could flare out from where it is right now? I'm worried about me, and I'm worried about the lives of other Palestinians. The Israelis have made it clear that they don't want us in this place, even though we're from here. They've been making it clear for many, many years now with people saying that the only reason that Palestinians remain is because they didn't finish the job in 1948 when they ethnically cleansed Palestine, leaving Palestinians with only 22% of their homeland. So I am very much worried about what's going to happen. We're already hearing from the foreign ministers talking about pushing Palestinians into the Sinai, into Egypt. We're already hearing and seeing what is happening in the West Bank. And even as I sit talking to you now, there are major protests outside of my office where Israelis are rounding up Palestinians who even express even the slightest bit of sympathy, not for Hamas, but for the people of Gaza. So I'm very worried about what this means for me as an individual. If you look at the broader region, what it means for the region, it's also very troublesome because what Israel has made clear that it wants is that they don't want to see Palestinians. And I think this is where the world needs to step in and to actually come forward and and put rules into place. If not, then why have an international legal system if not everybody is going to be forced to abide by it? I wonder if we could get your thoughts on, on what's happening in the West Bank. Uh, we saw protests there against President Abbas. Uh, some people chanting that they are calling for their support for Hamas. Uh, we know Hamas has not had elections in Gaza since 2007. We know it's a similar situation in the West Bank. Where does this leave Palestinian leadership right now? Is President Abbas losing his grip on power? He should have lost it long ago. Look, we had our, pre- our uh, presidential elections in 2005 and haven't had presidential elections since. So we were supposed to have them in 2009. They were canceled. And now we're in the year 2023. When it comes to parliamentary elections, they were supposed to t- they took place in 2006. We're supposed to take place four years later in 2010. And of course, also didn't take place. President Abbas has refused to hold elections and continues to hold on to power in the West Bank. Uh, because he doesn't want to cede power. He doesn't want to see a new generation come forward. Now, with everything that's happening here, the question isn't just about Mahmoud Abbas, but it's about what it is that Palestinians are, where it is that our future is. And right now, we don't have anybody who is protecting us. You know, just so people are aware, the, Palestine is not a state. The Palestinian Authority is not a state. There's no army. There's no people out there to protect us. All that we have is the ability to to look plead to the world to protect us and to stop these war crimes. And even that he isn't doing at this point in time. So what we're seeing now is a complete collapse of the Palestinian political system as we know it because of the fact that he's just sat in power for all of these years and has done absolutely nothing to protect us, to, to try to, to make sure that the Palestinians gain their freedom. So how, what is the path out of this then? I, I mean, if there is no legitimacy for President Abbas and Hamas is a designated terrorist organization that Israel says it is intent on 
wiping out. What, what is the path forward here? The path forward is a very simple one. Israel's an occupier. It has obligations as an occupier. It has to finally let Palestinians be free. What does it mean to live under occupation? What Israel saw over the past, uh, just over 12 days ago, was what Palestinians have lived with for the past 56 years. And nobody, but nobody wants to live without freedom. And it's up to the world, for the world to be pushing Israel to finally let Palestinians be free. We can look at violence and, and condemn violence, but violence is the symptom. The disease is the denial of freedom. And this is where it's imperative for world leaders to be stepping forward to stop Israel from bombing Palestinians into, into complete oblivion and to make sure that, that Palestinians are finally allowed to be free. This is the only way forward. And we've been saying this for decades. The problem is, is that nobody's listening. Just as a final point, uh, Israel said today uh, at the U.S.'s urging that it will allow humanitarian aid into Gaza via Egypt. This comes at the request of President Biden, though it says it's subject to inspections to make sure weapons and, and military equipment isn't going in. Uh, how optimistic are you that this will actually happen? Israel is insistent, no aid from its land. It has to come in from Egypt. See, this is what it means to live under military rule, under occupation. Israel controls the water, the food, the electricity, and uh, the fuel supplies into Gaza. That's what it means to live under occupation. They don't allow it in from Egypt. Now, in terms of what the Israeli cabinet just said, is they've, they've reiterated that they will not allow any of those supplies to come in, and they will only allow limited supplies to come in through Egypt, which is a very circuitous route going through the Sinai, and only for the southern part of the Gaza Strip. In other words, what they're trying to do is evacuate the entire northern part of the Gaza Strip, which is where 1.1 million Palestinians live, force them to flee down to the south to be able to drink water and to get food. This is a war crime. And this is why we've been hearing organizations such as the Norwegian Refugee Council, such as the United Nations, all be pushing and saying to Israel that they cannot do this. There is no safe way to be forcing people to evacuate down to the south. And by dangling some pieces of food or some water in front of them, this is, again, reprehensible and must be stopped. That We must re recognize Palestinians as human beings, as human beings, and give them the same treatment that we give to people all around the world when they're facing situations of war. Not turn off the water, not turn off the electricity, not turn off the fuel supply, and not allow uh, food and medicine to get into the Gaza Strip. That's just cruel, and it's a war crime. Diana Butcher, I want to thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.